This is a podcast version of a radio show by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. Find us at k103.se. Due to copyright, the music is shortened. Hey everyone, and welcome to The Global Inn, a show where we get to dive into interesting topics on the international radar. I'm Solomon, and I can't wait for us to explore all these different topics and perhaps answer some of the questions we have on the events that affects us all. I hope that this program introduces and sparks ideas and perspectives that may broaden your knowledge on international affairs. I hope you love the show. Welcome back to The Global Inn. I'm Solomon, and today I'm joined by Amanda. Amanda, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I can do that. Uh, my name is Amanda. I am 19 years old, and I currently study political science. I love reading the news, mm-hmm. and I think it's important to be informed about what's going on in the world. And so do I. And that's why I'm asking you, are you ready to get to it? Yes, I've been anticipating this day. Great. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about foreign politics. Yes. So the U.S. had an election in November. Yeah, but it's been all over the news. And some may wonder, why is it that this election is all over the news? And why is it so important to know about this here? Well, uh, simply put, the U.S. president sets the tone on U.S. foreign policy. And in doing so, sets the tone on the international arena. So, yes, it's important to be informed about it. Fine. I buy it. But today we're not speaking or talking about the mess of an election we witnessed this November, uh, but U.S. foreign policy. Uh, but not that it's less of a mess. Exactly. Uh, so there's a notion that the election of Joe Biden marks a return to the traditional norms of U.S. foreign policy and the U.S. foreign policy of the Obama administration. Mm. But at the same time, considering that the many changes we have witnessed these past four years, some question what a Biden administration can change or rather mm. or rather, what the world can expect from the U.S. Yeah. Or if, you know, countries can even look up for the, you know, look up to the U.S. for leadership or a rally point for Western democracies. Yeah. In mm. brief, U.S. foreign policy has in the past advanced a multilateral approach until Trump became president and introduced the America First doctrine. Yeah, um, but to give a short background, um, after the Second World War, the United States took a greater role in the international arena. And up until a few years ago, the U.S. was considered the champion of multilateralism. And they did that through international organizations like uh, the North North Atlantic the it's North a, Atlantic. It's a hard word. Yeah, the North Atlantic <laughs> Treaty Organization (NATO), um, where they consolidated their presence as a global power by holding leverage over their allies and keeping overall presence around the world. So the U.S. became a vital actor in creating the institutions and frameworks that together make the international world order. Yeah. Yeah, with this development in the Second World War and Cold War era, you could see that the United States became a focal point and entered alliances and agreements on the basis that it would help them prevent another war and also deepen relationships with countries. What's important to highlight here is that there was, you know, trust or rather a common understanding that the U.S. through organizations like NATO or the UN or any other organization all by themselves would act if one of their allies got attacked. And considering the past four years, I think it's important to talk about what is U.S. foreign policy? And coming now with the Biden administration, what can the world expect? Uh, What can U.S. allies expect? What can anyone expect from the U.S. And to help us understand all of these uh, intricate questions, we've invited the political scientist at Stockholm University and my friend Merrick Tabor. Hi, Merrick. Hello. Nice being here. (laughs) Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, Yes, my name is Merrick Tabor. I'm uh, a political scientist uh, active at uh, Department of Political Science, Stockholm University. 
uh, you can hear from my uh, accent, uh, originally from the United States. And uh, uh, still uh, keep well informed about what goes on in the United States. Yeah. Um, I remember the first time I met Merrick, uh, besides you being uh, one of the lecturers, we had, we hosted um, the election night in 2016 together. Uh, we had this entire night set up and we, uh, you answered a lot of great questions and you were informed and everything was going all right. And, you know, the, the results came in later that night, like uh, 3, 4 a.m. in the morning. And I had gone back home. I was sleeping. And in the middle of the night, someone is calling me and I'm thinking, who is this <laughs> crazy person? calling me so late in the night and it's Merrick on the other end of this phone saying Solomon you won't believe it <laughs> Trump won <laughs> how did you feel this year uh, well it's hard to say it's um, uh, of course it was a bit expected um, not only uh, the sort of result of the election but uh, all of the things that we've seen in conjunction with the election. Mm. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, again, unfortunately, this is going to have, I think, major consequences for the United States and maybe the rest of the world uh, for some time to come. Mm. Yeah. You are listening to The Global Inn on K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. We're going to go more in depth on the current relationship between the U.S. and the rest of the world. But as a result of Trump's foreign policy, the U.S. relationship with its allies and other parts of the world have become more strained. Merrick, what direction will Biden's foreign policy take? Or really, how much time will Biden spend on healing those relations before he can pursue his own foreign policy? Uh, well, I think um, his own foreign policy is going to be very much trying to um, uh, repair uh, as he sees at these relations, uh, he talks, uh, instead of talking about America first, he's been talking a lot about America is back. And what mm -hmm. he means by that is that the United States is back in the world um, very much. That's that's his idea. Uh, of course, uh, the U.S. is going to have to uh, react to things that happen in the world all the time. There is going to have to be his own foreign policy from really the, the very beginning, depending on what happens. But he's going to have to spend uh, probably most of his presidency uh, in one way or another trying to uh, repair relations and uh, perhaps create uh, a sense that the United States can be trusted Hmm. Uh, yeah. That's something that can take a long time to really repair. But so, you're saying that that's going to take up a lot of the work for him. Uh, it is, and this is a high priority for him. Among the first people that he's mentioned in terms of appointees is his foreign policy staff, uh, Secretary of State, uh, Ambassador to the United Nations, uh, National Security Advisor. Mm. These were some of the first people that he announced as being their nominees. So this has been a very high priority for him, mm. uh, trying to really repair uh, relations with the rest of the world. Yeah, so in your opinion, a lot of it is going to be based on looking at restoration. Yeah, uh, partly, um, uh, again, repairing relations with uh, allies, which I think in one sense might not be that difficult. I, I think a lot of allies have been really waiting for four years hmm. uh, and hoping that uh, Trump wouldn't be reelected and hoping that uh, these relations can go back to normal. It, it's not going to be totally, I think he's known, he's been very active before, he knows a lot of these people. So in one sense, um, uh, uh, returning to relatively normal uh, relations might not be uh, that problematic. Uh, however, I think the rest of the world also is going to be thinking of the fact that even Biden will be president for a limited period of time, four years, maybe eight years. Yeah. And the, the question is, what happens after that? Is there a risk mm. that this could happen again? Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's something that's much more difficult to repair in the long term. Yeah. And I think, uh, well, I, will, I would also say that a lot of countries outside of, you know, if you look at the EU, considering itself an ally, they've been for a long time wanting to be 
independent uh, from the U.S. And that's I think that has been going on for a long while. And you see that the you know Germany has been trying to take a greater role as being a rally point for European countries now that uh, even UK is exiting. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But do you really think it will be that easy to mend those uh, strained relations? I think in one sense, initially, uh, I do. That is, they're going to get along very well. But I think the... the I think the long-term problem is to what extent European allies, allies in other parts of the world, even NATO allies, we're going to have a sense that the U.S. can be trusted longer than four or eight years. And mm. what happens if mm. someone like Trump uh, returns? Uh, Trump does have still a lot of support. Yeah. And uh, when you look at the Republican Party, uh, what you've seen is that very many people in the party have not really liked what he's done internationally, mm. but they've accepted it because uh, winning elections seems to have been more important uh, than a consistent foreign policy and even other kinds of policies. Yeah. And I think that's something that the world uh, has to consider and yeah. probably is not going to forget very quickly. But Merrick, uh, with regards to these um, strained relations, can the rest of the world trust the U.S.? perfectly honestly, uh, I would be very cautious about it. Yeah. Why? Uh, because, again, when I see uh, what's going on domestically in the United States, I could see, again, certain politicians with an idea that they could win elections in a similar way that Trump has, mm. uh, and where certain principles of foreign policy, even if they had an idea that this is a good foreign policy, they might sacrifice that in order to get elected. And I think that's a risk that other countries in the world have to constantly think about. Yeah. So um, in a least, sense, uh, what you're also saying is that what we've seen these past four years, they're not simply a parenthesis in the story of uh, U.S. foreign policy. No, it, Trump didn't create this all on his own. Yeah. Uh, that is, there, there has been a pent up opinion in the United States that he's activated. Mm. And he's gone much farther, perhaps, than many others would have gone. But the preconditions for this are mm. going to exist after Trump. Yeah. And I think that's something that the world has to be a bit cautious about in terms of how dependent they want to be on the United States. This is, uh, again, with allies, it might be a little easier. With certain international organizations where it's not just allies, that are more friendly, with a more friendly attitude towards the United States. Yeah. And different types of treaties, where you're also working with countries that, again, maybe don't have the exact same attitude towards the United States as definitely countries in NATO, mm. uh, but even the European Union. In the beginning, we talked about the broader characteristics of U.S. foreign policy and that they've had a multilateral approach But how would you define their foreign policy, Merrick? I think the United States foreign policy traditionally has been more multilateral. Of course, there hasn't been a sort of always unified policy. Different political parties have had different ideas about foreign policy. But in general, much more interested in multilateral relations, trade relations. And again, even if you do see... Uh, important differences between the political parties, you do see this general tendency to be very active in the world, even this idea of uh, being a leader in the world, yeah. mm. which has been rather important for the United States. Something that also is at times controversial, that is what gives the U.S. the right to sort of lead the rule of the world. But mm. uh, in any case, ideas like that have been important. With Trump, you saw a rather clear break with this and something that is very atypical, particularly for the Republican Party. Trump's not normally considered to be a typical Republican, really, but uh, he did manage to take over the party. Mm. But he doesn't like multilateral arrangements. He doesn't like personally dealing with more than one other person at a time. Mm. That's sort of his style, perhaps his personality, more than really ideology. He had this America first idea, which a lot of people do feel is a bit naive, uh, the idea that the U.S. can basically manage everything on its own. 
Yeah. And doesn't really need the rest of the world. He has an idea about trade, that trade deficits, even though from an economic point of view, everybody is in a sense gaining from that kind of trade, even though trade deficits can solve some part, some type of problem. But in any case, his idea is that the United States is money is being stolen from the United States in this way. So again, he's, his view of a lot of these things has been extremely non-traditional. And again, a lot of people, both Democrats and Republicans, uh, have felt uninformed, really. Mm. He also, perhaps his personality, his position, uh, particularly as president, he seems to have had a great affinity for authoritarian leaders. Mm. And doesn't really seem to have much respect for leaders whose power is based more on democratic support. And again, this is perhaps part of his personality, the way he's run his businesses. He's never been accountable to anybody. He's never had a traditional corporation where you have responsibility to shareholders, to a board. Mm -hmm. He's always been in charge. And it's a difficult time in more democratic contexts. And this you can see in his uh, the way he's conducted himself as president and seems to admire authoritarian leaders who uh, also can deal with their countries in a similar way. Uh, but that's also uh, something atypical and cause a lot of concern. That is a support for more authoritarian leaders, which also is not something typical, at least openly, in the United States. Of course, the United States and even other countries very often does passively support authoritarian regimes in certain ways yeah. for their own interests. But this is nothing that they're, in a sense, openly proud of. They try to sort of hide that very often. But he has been very open about these kind of things. Mm. Yeah. You are listening to The Global Inn on K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. If we're going to go more in depth on specific regions, starting with the Middle East and the Iran nuclear deal, Trump has pulled out of that deal. Uh, what will be the consequences of that? And what is Biden expected to do about that? Uh, this is a bit of a problem. Biden does want to re-enter the deal. The deal itself was not easy to put together from the beginning. Mm. And of course, none of these deals are perfect. That is, they are a matter of compromise. It was uh, the people behind the deal did feel that it was a big success in the sense that there was an agreement with Iran, a relatively high level of control over the situation in Iran, mm. uh, all of these things. Trump pulls out. And again, the possibilities of re-entering, difficult to say. It, it looks like Iran is interested also in a deal in some way, and they would like to have uh, some relief with regard to the sanctions that have been placed on them. On the other hand, there is a problem of trust. They don't want to, it took a lot of political capital, really, mm. on the part of some of the more uh, moderate leaders in Iran to get the more hardliners to accept the deal to begin with. Yeah. And then when the U.S. pulled out, this was you know, the hardliners show, well, you can't trust the U.S. We've been telling you this the whole time. And that's hard so to repair. Yeah, exactly. Not it's only that. It, it can be hard to get the hardliners to accept a new deal. Yeah. And it's not at all certain that the deal is going to be better in all respects, because, again, Iran is probably going to not make as many concessions in some ways. Adding to adding to what uh, Amanda just said about it not being easy to repair, I'm also thinking about the general that was assassinated by the U.S. Do you think that will be one of the chips they will hold to get concessions? It's hard to see how some of the assassinations that have taken place really can be used as chips. There's not very much Iran can do about those kind of things. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, it is something that can be held up as, you know how hard this is for us to make a deal with you after these things have occurred. Mm. Mm. But the fact that they have been uh, relatively, it seems as if they've been relatively restrained in terms of retaliation for this. Yeah, it's been taken as an indication that they really do want to wait out uh, Trump uh, and see if uh, a deal can be struck with Biden. Mm. Uh, again, be... some type of quick retaliation could make it even more difficult to uh, uh, to reach a deal. But what could be Biden's first move then? 
Well, of course, there's going to have to be negotiations, contacts on various levels in order to see what can be done, hmm. uh, how this can be repaired. And of course, Iran has also been stockpiling to some extent nuclear material. The question is, again, how willing they're going to be to get rid of everything and what they're going to, what kind of concessions they're going to want to have. It may, again, this is just speculation. Of course, I think the agreement from the uh, U.S. side is going to have to be perhaps in some ways a little harsher than the previous deal in terms of how long the deal is going to last, possibilities for control, uh, things like that. But Iran is probably going to ask for much greater concessions with regard to trade, economic relief, things mm. like that. Yeah. Hej, jag heter Marcus Dandovs. Jag driver podcasten Äkta känner äkta via K103, Göteborgs studentradio. Äkta känner äkta, det är en podcast om teater och film. Podcasten släpps varannan måndag på Spotify, iTunes, Acast. Ja, där poddar finns helt enkelt. Jag hoppas ni tycker om den. If we move a, a bit you know, lower down the map to Israel, Trump, I don't know, a year ago, moved the uh, U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv, right, to uh, Jerusalem. Yeah. As I understood it, there was bipartisan support to move the embassy to Jerusalem. How do we see that affecting uh, the U.S. standpoint on uh, the, uh, the two-state deal or is, is it, you know, the strained relations with the uh, Palestinian authority? Yeah. It's a little more complicated than just saying that there was bipartisan support. Uh, that is, there was a type of decision made to do this. Uh, however, it wasn't implemented. And there was an idea that perhaps it shouldn't be implemented for the time being in order not to complicate the peace negotiations. Okay. So what he did was actually controversial in the sense that it did create a situation where peace negotiations, at least with the Palestinians, is going to be much more complicated now. Yeah. And this is something that's going to be very difficult to undo. Of course, the embassy is not going to be moved back. Mm. So this this is a problem. Uh, it's perhaps also important to sort of point out that the people who were really happy in the United States about this were primarily the evangelicals. Mm. And this is where a lot of the support for a more extreme Israeli policy comes from. The Jewish community in the United States is actually very small. It's about 1% of the population. And they're rather divided on Israeli policy towards the Palestinians. But the evangelicals are actually strongly behind a more aggressive uh, Israeli policy. And this has to do with a certain interpretation they make of the Book of Revelations and what's going to happen when the Jews retake the Promised Land and what's going to happen to the evangelicals primarily. So this is based, uh, again, a particular religious doctrine that they have. But it, he got a lot of support from that particular group. But uh, again, in sort of the policymaking circles, there's an idea that this has created even a more difficult situation solving the, the, the problem with uh, Palestine. Yeah. Mm. Uh, still on uh, Israel, we see that the U.S. has put in a lot of effort making majority Arab countries normalize their relations with Israel. What do you think about those uh, agreements It's difficult to know even there exactly how this is going to contribute in general. Uh, of course, uh, Israel, perhaps some of these countries are in one way perhaps happy. A lot of this has to do in terms of some of the countries in the Middle East, a type of united front against Iran, uh, which many of these countries see as a, a threat. On the other hand, again, these are more authoritarian countries. Mm. setting up these relations. And to some extent, uh, it seems to be based on promises of weapon sales and things like this, uh, yeah. which may or may not occur. Uh, again, Trump did try to negotiate weapon sales to Saudi Arabia and other more authoritarian regimes in the area. It was not very popular among either Democrats or Republicans. So a condition to this uh, normalization was that some of these authoritarian countries were going to receive some kind of military aid or deals? Not really a precondition, but perhaps a uh, promise that it might occur. <laughs> uh, again, I'm sure they were aware of the fact that he might not get reelected, and I'm sure they're aware of the fact that there's, there is strong resistance to selling weapons to some of these uh, regimes among both parties, really. 
Mm. But there's, um, of course, other reasons for this, not just the potential weapons sales, but again, uh, attempts to try to have a bit of a more united front against Iran, perhaps an idea that economically there can be benefits from uh, opening up trade relations and other kinds of relations. But uh, this is also something that's seen in the region, at least, as making it even more difficult to find a solution. Uh, mm. with regard to Palestine. Mm. We can expect Biden to go another way? Uh, that's also, um, during the Obama administration, relations were very strained with uh, Netanyahu. And as long as Netanyahu is there, you can probably expect that uh, the U.S. Biden are going to have a very difficult time making progress. If you do see a more moderate leadership in Israel, then it's possible maybe to see a bit more progress. But I wouldn't expect that Biden is going to do uh, much better than Obama did in terms of trying to really deal with the Palestinian issue. Okay, well, the U.S. relations with China have also become more strained. I'm thinking about trade war and mm. the fact that China has been moving military bases deeper into Asia. Yeah. Uh, what can we expect from Biden? How will the U.S. relationship with China develop? It's uh, interesting. Uh, again, Trump was very friendly uh, with Xi, uh, perhaps for similar reasons that he's been friendly with other more authoritarian regimes and was praising them quite a bit. His views on trade, again, did affect the relationships primarily with tariffs and things like that, uh, probably harmed the U.S. more than it did China. But again, China wasn't extremely happy with that uh, either. But one thing that he did do is really left a lot of space for China to make a lot of moves. Mm. Uh, he left this um, uh, attempt to set up the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership which would have been a very large trade zone, not including China. And it doesn't seem to have understood that in addition to trade, part of the ideas behind this was to try to limit Chinese influence uh, geo-strategically, uh, mm. uh, Pacific Asia, uh, but basically left that. And China moved in and has set up an economic partnership, uh, the largest tariff-free trading bloc in the world right now with the United States outside of that. Also, again, Trump has tried to, he's been rather uninterested in being engaged in different parts of the world, even saying that he's not going to come to the aid of uh, South Korea, yeah. uh, not come to the aid of other countries. And China has been able to expand without very much resistance from the United States at all. Again, uh, I don't consider China to be a, a type of imperialist power in, a, in the sense that they have territorial ambitions outside of Asia, but there are territories where they see their own interests, perhaps territories that they feel historically belong to China, mm. where they can expand their reach to some extent. And economically, of course, they expand their reach very effectively. Part of the problem in dealing with China that Trump has had, again, he's focused very much on trade deficit. Uh, yeah, explain that, because I, I think that's been a lot of issue with, with, with the U.S. and China and people not really understanding the trade war. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, he sees a deficit. And again, uh, maybe it's not great to have a, a trade deficit in all respects. It's not a disaster either. Both sides are really doing well economically on the basis of this. Of course, there are, you can't have discussions about how to reduce the trade imbalance. Uh, however, more importantly, uh, with regard to China, some of the issues that have been discussed as being more important are, for example, intellectual property rights and things like that. And by disengaging with allies, uh, even though Trump has talked about things like that, he's done virtually nothing except start these trade wars that, again, probably have affected farmers in the United States and others, consumers, to a greater extent than China, even though both sides have been affected. I think what Biden is going to do is going to try to partly probably repair the trade relations that both countries are dependent on, mm. but probably after repairing relations with allies, uh, repairing relations with certain international organizations and trade alliances, try to uh, work together with other countries in order to influence China in yep. this regard. Mm. But and uh, I, can, so I think uh, there's going to be a, a different approach to China. Mm. 
And I don't think we can really talk about U.S.-China relations without mentioning the concentration camps mm. for Uyghurs. Has Biden talked about this? It's been mentioned. The Uyghurs have had problems in China for a very long time. Yeah. But when more attention was brought to the issue, at that time, Trump was more friendly towards China. And his, uh, I think you have to say, Islamophobic ideas, he, 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 was, he thought that it was fine and said so publicly. He, he had uh, understanding for China's policy. Since then, he hasn't really talked about it, and he's been uh, had a very negative attitude towards China. But I think primarily because he's wanted to blame China for COVID nineteen yeah. uh, uh, and try to deflect the responsibility that he has, regardless of where the virus came. Political leaders in different countries have to deal with whatever happens to their country. Mm. Uh, but he's tried to deflect attention by blaming everything on China, yeah. and uh, so at least rhetorically. We see a lot of criticism of China. Mm. In practice, perhaps not all that much has really happened. But again, I think with Biden, you're going to see a, a different orientation towards China. And he uh, does discuss human rights to a much greater extent. Trump doesn't really talk about human rights very much. Yeah, that's true. You are listening to The Global Inn on K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. We can see that Russia has become more aggressive towards both Georgia and Ukraine. And uh, there, there's been a lot of talks from the EU on uh, putting on harsher sanctions from the EU. While we see that the U.S. has taken multiple steps to back from uh, the international arena. And with this approach, seeing how it's been played out these four past years, can NATO still trust that the U.S. will act uh, I think NATO will trust the U.S., at least during the Biden administration. The, the question is, uh, again, is to what extent do the other NATO member states want to have a type of backup plan uh, mm. in case something like this occurs again? Maybe they'll try to forget this and hope that it is a parenthesis. Maybe they'll be uh, a little cautious about that. It's really difficult to know what type of judgment they're going to make. But I, th but I think at the same time, though, we've seen a lot of tendency from both China and Russia that when the U.S. has in this past years taken a step, uh, you know, to close in on themselves, you see that both Russia and China have have been moving outwards. Yeah, someone uh, has to fill their shoes. Kind yeah, of? someone huh. has to fill the void. Will that void be easily managed or pulled back? I don't see uh, I don't, China no. moving back bases to the mainland. I don't see uh, Russia easily giving up parts of the Ukraine. No, no I think, well, first of all, I just, I'm not sure that so-called power vacuums or voids necessarily have to be filled. That is, the fact that one major power isn't there doesn't necessarily mean that another one has to move in, although... You do see that kind of tendency very often. Mm. Mm. But I think it is, it's not going to be easy to reverse what's happened in many respects. It's not going to be easy to dislodge Russia from the Ukraine. It's not going to be a, very easy to displace Russian influence in some of the parts of the Soviet Union where, they, where they've gained more influence. It's not going to be very easy to get China to withdraw some of the bases that they've already established. The question is if it's possible maybe to draw a line, but I think uh, some of these changes, they may be a bit more permanent. Mm -hmm. Even with even with regard to, again, we, we talked a bit about this trade organization in the uh, Pacific. It, it seems like Biden is interested in joining. Yeah, I was going to uh, say that. Can we expect yeah. Biden to take a more active role and step in? Uh, well, step in. I, I think that he would be interested in joining, mm. but it's not going to be like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That yeah. is, now there is a, an economic partnership there. It's established. It's, in a sense, working. And the United States maybe can become a member, but they're not going to be the ones leading <laughs> in, yeah. in the sense of we're establishing it in this particular way. Uh, now they're entering as a member into uh, a trade agreement that's in progress. 
the conditions are not going to be the same as they would have been if uh, the United States had remained there. Mm. And I think this is going to be the case for the U.S. Uh, again, this idea of America is back. It may be, in a sense, coming back, but it's not coming back to exactly the same world that it sort of left with Trump. Yeah. Talking about another treaty where I hope the U.S. may come back. In regard, with regards to Russia, we see that there's been moving back from the uh, uh, Open Sky Treaty. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the Open Skies uh, Surveillance Treaty basically set up a, a number of countries involved. And the basic idea was to create the possibility for different countries to surveil each other. That is, given a type of open skies or free airspace in order to, in, in a sense, become more confident that other countries are not preparing attacks to monitor a bit what's going on. And as with all arrangements of this type, some accusations back and forth that the open skies have not been quite as open mm. as uh, everybody has wanted. On the other hand, general agreement that this is much better than nothing, yeah. uh, and that you can try to resolve some of these disputes through renegotiations or, or something like that. Trump also left this some time ago or gave notice of leaving it. And now more recently, and again, this is uh, a bit difficult to know, a lot of what he's done in terms of foreign policy has been based on executive orders hasn't gone through Congress or things like this. Yeah. So in one sense, some of these things might be able to be reversed. With regard to the treaties, re-entering a treaty, uh, difficult to know exactly what the situation is. If that's going to uh, necessitate some type of renegotiation, renegotiation, or if you can just, in a sense, go back to the way things were. One thing that he has done very recently is ordered that the special planes, there's two of them really from the U.S., that are used for the surveillance not only be decommissioned, but they be taken apart yeah. so yeah. that they can't be used again. And this was also extremely controversial because, again, there was not really strong support for leaving this agreement uh, among Democrats or Republicans. And perhaps a hope that when Bar Biden becomes president, uh, they can re-enter and get back to normal. But mm -hmm. if the planes actually are taken apart, uh, then it could take at least months, maybe even longer. That's going to be harder. Uh, it to do. could be hard. Uh, there are also discussions, again, for the past four years, it seems as if Trump is not interested in details. He doesn't get extremely involved in, in details of things. And uh, there's a lot of matters where he's been kept in the dark. Uh, so even perhaps here, they can keep him in the dark about destroying these vital planes then? Well, uh, there's a lot of paperwork, bureaucratic paperwork that <laughs> might be necessary to do this. So there is an idea that maybe they can delay the actual destruction of the planes until after he's left office. Mm. Uh, mm. But hard to know. Yeah. Well, Biden is now the president-elect, and the norm has been that the sitting president takes a step back during the last few months of their term. And at least when it comes to their foreign policy, just kind of make room for the next president yeah. and ease the transition. Trump has decided to go a different way. Can you tell us more about that and what effects that will have? Yeah, so in general, there's an idea that a so-called lame duck president, that is a president that's on his way out, uh, should not take uh, new policy initiatives. And this is in relation both to foreign policy and domestic policy, mm. that basically, uh, of course, the country has to keep running. Crises can come up. But in general, you should have a, a calm transition. The new team should be informed about everything going on. So there is a smooth transition. If crises come up, it's good that the president-elect and the president-elect staff is at least informed about what's going on. Again, they have no formal decision-making role in this. Yeah. Trump has um, been extremely active. First, he's tried to avoid allowing the transition team to get access to any kind of information. Mm. He, he's tried to uh, limit their access to federal, all federal agencies, basically. He's tried to limit their access to classified material. 
And he managed to do that for some weeks. Now uh, the transition is underway, but he seems to be taking initiatives that presidents don't take in this type of situation. And even very strong suspicions that he's trying to really undermine things in order to create a situation where it would be extremely difficult for Biden to straighten things out. And again, taking this plane apart is one example of that. Are there other examples you could, you know, other examples on how the Trump administration is trying to undermine the uh, coming administration? There's uh, a number of things with regard to, well, uh, again, perhaps the most important issue, which is primarily domestic issue, but not totally, the uh, COVID-19 situation, where he seems to be doing absolutely nothing. Uh, the way of, in a sense, trying to create the worst situation possible. He's threatened, and this is sort of a connection between domestic politics and uh, foreign politics, where a military spending budget has to be approved. Trump is extremely irritated with Twitter, which keeps flagging his tweet for being incorrect and all of this. Uh, So as a type of retaliation against them, he's demanding that as part of the spending agreement, in order for him to approve the defense uh, authorization budget, he wants uh, some of the regulations on social media companies changed. Mm. And again, these are two separate issues. And even people who are a little dissatisfied with Twitter and Facebook understand this is a very complicated issue with regard to freedom of speech and uh, uh, other principles. Uh, But he's holding the military hostage. And again, this affects U.S. policy, and it could be months, actually, if he does refuse to uh, authorize the spending. This could affect, uh, again, U.S. military uh, capabilities and, again, uh, foreign policy initiatives for a significant period of time, in the worst case. But he has access to the money that he needs now that we're kind of frozen in. Biden, right? Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. And he has started announcing people that will be joining him in his administration. Is is there something that stands out with the people that he has announced so far? What stands out, what he promised during the election campaign, and what is clear when you see at least the people that he's proposing now is that there's a very uh, high degree of diversity in terms of both men and women, people of color. Uh, So again, you see a lot of diversity. You also see a lot of people, and perhaps he does receive some criticism for this, but a lot of people with a lot of experience and competence, but uh, perhaps not so many younger people and perhaps not so many people that represent uh, somewhat newer ideas. This is, in a sense, maybe how he got elected and what he promised, to sort of go back to normal. Uh, There are ideas that he sees himself as sort of a transitional figure. He's going to try to restore order and then turn things over to the new generation. Mm. Of course, the new generation can be... pretty old also. He's very old, really. Mm. So, uh, And also there's been a lot of talk of Kamala Harris, the first female black vice president in the United States. How much influence will she have on the policies? She may have a fair amount of influence. One thing that was very important to Obama and that Biden also felt was a very important role he had was the fact that he was part of basically all important decisions, giving his point of view, telling Obama when he had a different idea about what should be done. And again, ultimately, it's up to the president to decide. Mm. But I have a very strong feeling that he's going to be dealing with Kamala Harris in a very similar way, that is trying to have her actively involved Mm. in important decisions. Uh, A couple of other things that are important. One is that Biden is uh, older. And again, something could, of course, happen to him. So Kamala Harris does have to be prepared to really take over. Mm. Uh, There are even ideas that Biden might not uh, stand for a second term. And in that case, Kamala Harris would be the natural person to perhaps run for president after that. Uh, So again, her role uh, can be quite uh, important in this administration. Mm. One other thing that could be important, depending on what happens in the Senate races, uh, she could be the deciding vote in the Senate. 
Yeah. Uh, if the Democrats manage to win the final two Senate seats. You are listening to The Global Inn on K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. Now we're talking about, you know, the democratic structures of the United States. And that, that got me to think about how the United States has a lot of times in the past put on the these, you know, democratization efforts to travel in other countries and uh, uh, dictate how elections are supposed to look like a fair and uh, protection of human rights and uh, that those other important notions that they have been advancing in the past. But then you see how these past four years have shown that even as a, a great nation, a, 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 a nation that boasts itself to, of being great and democratic and free is very easily toppled with one single man that really does show the uglier face of uh, the U.S. I mean, we've seen great movements like the Black Lives Matter rising, and it has gained a lot of support in other countries. And uh, you also see treatment of um, other minorities, Native Americans, standing up against uh, Trump. And you also see this election, as I said in the beginning, was pretty much a mess because still ongoing, there are multiple you know, lawsuits declaring some irregularities in the election. So what do you say about this? Will the U.S. be able to go back and restore its face as the uh, shining beacon of democracy? I think this could be very difficult. The U.S. system, it's based on a constitutional order from the 1700s. Uh, the people who wrote the Constitution were against democracy at that time. And one of the reasons that the country has operated relatively well and perhaps be able to maintain a certain reputation is because a lot of politicians followed norms of democracy uh, that developed within a system that in many ways is not really that democratic. The U.S., if you look at, for example, the... Uh, Could you uh, just be uh, clear on what you mean, not democratic? It wasn't based on democracy. The people who wrote the Constitution, were uh, they talked about democracy as uh, mob rule. Mm. And this was rather common in the 1700s. Uh, political elites didn't trust the people. Uh, so there's a lot of elements, and you see this even in the election system. It just doesn't meet modern criteria for democratic elections. The Electoral Integrity Project, when it ranks countries that are considered to be liberal democratic, the United States winds up second from the bottom. Uh, Albania is the only country under the United States. And again, one of the reasons it's been able to maintain its reputation is that politicians have, to a large extent, followed certain norms. Well, Trump has broken these norms, and he's gotten a lot of the Republican Party to break these norms. Mm. Mm. Um, I think it's very difficult for the U.S. Uh, as a country to go out to certain parts of the world and talk about democracy, to work yeah. as election observers. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, even people who, and there are a lot of good election observers from the United States who are not tied to the U.S. government, uh, but I think for the good of democracy, they might have to consider not taking a very active role mm. uh, because I think it, it almost delegitimizes right now the role of the international community in these efforts. And this is something that's very problematic, I think. Klang. Ett radioprogram om experimentellt ljud på tisdagar 21.00 till 21.30 på K103. To round up, um, Amanda, what have we talked about? Yeah, we've uh, talked about a lot of things, um, um, but uh, starting off uh, with the U.S. election, um, yeah. kind of talking a little bit about how from now, from this election with the new Biden administration, yeah. that there will be a focus on restoring mm. a lot of the strained relations that we've seen, and yeah. um, as you mentioned, uh, Merrick, it might be a bit more difficult than uh, we might expect. Obviously, you've we've given a bit of nuance here that some relations and deals are easier to restore yeah. than others. Some deals will have to be, you know, mended, and uh, they won't have the same leverage mm. going back into these uh, deals. 
for example, the Iran nuclear deal right. and also the uh, Open Sky Treaty. Some of them are a bit more difficult to uh, readdress. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we've also talked about how due to this shift in U.S. foreign policy, a lot of the world has to look at uh, the U.S. domestic policy. Uh, we've talked about how this period or this change with Biden being elected might not be a symbol or a sign that this past four years has been a parenthesis. Mm. This has been something brewing in the underbelly of the U.S. So I would say, as uh, you mentioned, uh, Merrick, that there should be some caution uh, coming forward from other countries in their interactions with the United States. Uh, I would be uh, cautious. Again, I think a lot of countries perhaps uh, are going to be very optimistic and going to want to treat this as a parenthesis. But I think uh, U.S. domestic politics has been seen, I think, very much as entertainment, a type yeah. of soap opera following elections. But I think uh, it has to be viewed much more seriously, actually, uh, in terms of uh, international relations. Either way, this is not the end of Trumpism. No. Are there anything? Is there anything that you would like to emphasize or... Uh, something that you would want our listeners to know, or would you like to make any projections? Uh, no, it, uh, one thing you can perhaps say is that um, predict, it's sometimes difficult to make uh, predictions and projections uh, because, um, uh, again, uh, the entire Trump period and very much of what happened was pretty unexpected. Mm. And even the fact that he was able to do the kinds of things that he did uh, without, at least during those four years, uh, meet very much resistance uh, yeah. or suffer particular political consequences for it. Uh, so that, um, uh, again, it's an indication that um, uh, very unexpected things can happen. Yeah. Yeah. And we would like to say thank you very much to our guest, Merrick. Mary Tabor. Thank you. Man. We were very happy to have you here. Well, thank you. It was very nice being here. And I uh, hope you can be back for another episode another time. Yeah. Oh, certainly. <laughs> well, take care. Oh, yeah. Take care. <laughs> and to all of you who are listening to us, you are more than free to write to us on our Facebook account, The Global Inn. Uh, we'll try to answer as many comments if you have any ideas or would like to discuss any of the topics that we've mentioned here today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. See you next time. See you. Bye. You've just heard a podcast version of a radio show by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. You'll find all our shows at k103.se. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Stay tuned.